For those of you that are new with us this morning, my name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here. I get the privilege this morning of leading us our time together in God's Word. Before we jump in, I I can say this with complete sincerity. My family can attest to the truthfulness of this statement, but I make no apologies for my love of Val Kilmer movies. Um, uh, I just, I'm a fan. You know, I was the guy in middle school who begged his parents to take him to the barber so that I could get the flat top like Iceman. I don't even know the movie. I don't know who Maverick is. It was all about Iceman. Um, I, I had to be Iceman. Um, I, I make no apologies for my love of Val Kilmer movies. And I think one of the most underrated Val Kilmer movies of all time is The Prince of Egypt. How many of you, see, how many of you ever seen The Prince of Egypt? How many of you remember that it's Val Kilmer who voiced Moses in The Prince of Egypt? It is one of the most underrated Val Kilmer movies of all time. And, and, and here's the thing about the movie. Uh, the movie, it, it's, they don't, don't often do this in Hollywood, especially in, in larger studio productions, a DreamWorks movie, if you remember. But they sought to stay as faithful to the story as they could while using a little bit of creative license that was there is to fill in parts of the gap of the story. In fact, the creators were so adamant about trying to handle the story well, that before they started writing the script, they put together a theological group of Protestant scholars, Catholic scholars, and Jewish scholars who would read the script as it was being written along the way at every stage of development to try to make sure that the script was sticking as faithfully as they could to the essence of the story itself. And one of the heads of of DreamWorks Studios said this about the movie when it was released. This is not a fairy tale that we could take and just tell our own version of. It was our goal from the very beginning and our mandate to take this Bible story seriously and tell it in its context as accurately as possible. Now, for those of you who have seen it, you know there's a few deviations from the story, some creative license that's taken to kind of fill in the gaps of the story. But all in all, it's a good movie. And and one of the things that I most appreciate about the Prince of Egypt, when I think about the story of Moses, is that movie reminds us of just how thoroughly Egyptian Moses was. It's oftentimes, it's easy to forget when you read the story of Moses or or you're familiar with the story of Moses that, you know, after he was weaned by his mom and we're not sure exactly what age, he was taken to the house of Pharaoh, the courts of Pharaoh, where Pharaoh's daughter raised him as her own son. And the very next part of the story we get, we get Moses looking out over the, the laborers and the slaves in Egypt and recognizing his identification with the Israelites. But you forget that in all that time between, Moses was raised in the courts of Pharaoh as Pharaoh's daughter's own son, as Pharaoh's grandson. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, we're reminded that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and deed. Moses was as thoroughly Egyptian as one could be. He was immersed and educated. I mean, just think about being Pharaoh's grandson. I mean, the education and the tutors that he had throughout his development into manhood. He was thoroughly acquainted and steeped in the story and the worldview of the Egyptian dynasty. He understood the cosmology and the astrology and and the whole idea of the, the phases of state life being, the scale of being, and all the ideas that were part of that civilization. He was extremely well educated and cultured. 
by the time his story picks up and he begins to recognize the injustice being committed against his people. And I think it's helpful as we begin to go through the first of the five books that Moses was the primary human author of. I I think it's helpful to remember this reality about Moses and his story, especially the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Because as we begin to explore them more completely, and we're actually going to do that today. I mean, we've only made it through two verses in two weeks, but we're going to take the Herculean task today of getting through the entire rest of the first chapter. Um, We're going to find some striking evidence, and you can go and read it for yourself throughout the week. There's some striking evidence of majestic craftsmanship. The story is so well crafted that it shouldn't be surprising to you that someone of Moses' background and education would have been able to do this. Remember, as we talked about in the very first week, a a bigger or more overt purpose behind the craftsmanship of these first five books of the Bible, including the very beginning stories that Genesis Genesis begins with, is a, a very clear and direct refutation or rebuttal to all the stories of the day, the stories of the nations and their lies and falsehoods, including that of ancient Egypt, from which Moses had been educated, and, and the parents and the grandparents of the generation that he's writing this for that's about to go into the promised land had come from. There's a direct, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, way that he puts these things together to remind them of whose they are in light of all the things that are being held out to them. But at the same time, it's helpful to remember that this was a direct confrontation with all that Moses had been raised to believe. It was a direct confrontation with all that he had been educated in. And we come to realize as he pens this for God's people on the edge of entering into the promised land that what Moses writes for God's people inspired by God himself for their well-being, Moses believed to be true. And I think it's really important as we begin this journey through these chapters to realize that this is central to the intention that not only God but Moses had when he wrote it for when it would be read by God's people or heard by God's people, that he intended God's people to read this story as truth, including the first three chapters. It's not just another myth or as the head of DreamWorks would say, fairy tale to put alongside the other myths or stories of their day. This was reality coming to bear on the hearts and lives of God's people. In fact, Nancy Guthrie, great Bible scholar, she wrote in one of her books about Genesis that there is a matter of factness to what Moses wrote about the beginning of everything. When you come to Genesis chapter 1 in particular, where we'll spend our time this morning, you have to see that there's a very matter-of-fact reality to what Moses is writing and even the way that he wrote it. This isn't the land of fairy tale. This isn't myth, as you and I so commonly think about that particular word. And it's not, in my estimation, a purely poetical piece of artistry. I believe that God inspired Moses to write an account that God's people would understand to be the truth of which their story and their understanding was a part of. 
I know one of the ways scholars talk about this, and I'm just going to introduce this this morning, not for us to spend a lot of time on it, but for you to see how the discussions develop in the life of God's people, but then how they impact the way we read it. One of the ways that scholars will talk about these first three chapters of Genesis is to understand them as a stunning example of what's called stylized Hebrew narrative, stylized historical prose, not purely artistic in its poetry. And there's an area of disagreement, and this is why I bring it up, because I want you to see how this works. This is an area of disagreement between men and women who are faithful scholars of God's Word, who deeply love God's Word and have been talking about this for centuries. Some will read this and will understand it to be essentially poetic in its composition and nature, and that understanding will then begin to give influence to how they understand the rest of the story. Others will look at it and understand in its grammatical construction and the the same way words are used and particular phrases are used will understand it to be predominantly historical narrative, prose in its writing and in its beauty. And again, that will impact how particular parts of the story are then understood. But here's what matters. We're not going to take our time to pick both of those things apart in detail this morning. Here's why I bring it up. I want you to be reminded that this is a place where faithful scholars throughout centuries have disagreed. It's not a first order issue. For someone to say that they would read the first three chapters of Genesis to be predominantly poetic artistry and and not historical narrative in its essence doesn't equal, I'm not saying these things are true. Poetry can convey truth in a different use of language and imagery. But we tend to find ourselves in conversations like this amongst God's people, and we tend to get the hair on our backs up a little quickly about this. But this isn't a first-order issue. It's not unimportant. It's very important. Because the way we approach the first three chapters of Genesis and how we understand the writing to be composed will have a downstream impact at times on how we understand different things that Moses is saying. But this is an area of charity in which we can have gracious debate. Because as we were reminded last week, that which we together hold fast to as God's people is the unified agreement that we believe in God the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth. And so whether we open up Genesis 1 through 3 and understand it to be stylized historical narrative, whether as some scholars will approach it and say it's exalted prose, or whether others will approach it and say it's beautiful poetry, no one can argue the elegance of the craftsmanship. It's stunning. And Moses, with the background with which he had and the education with which he was given, would have been fully capable of pinning it. And now I want to say this as well as we get going too. We could spend a full three plus months in Genesis chapter one alone, going through it almost word by word, construction by construction. We're going to spend this morning on it. I didn't really get a result from y'all. Some of y'all are angry. Some of y'all are happy. I don't you think about that. No, here's what we're going to do. My intention is to just take very big steps to the first three chapters of Genesis to see 
the story in essence and how it was to be predominantly received and understood by God's people as Moses delivered it to God's people. But then as we understand the story, especially as we get through the fall and the entrance of sin, I want us on this side of the story, on our side of the story, on the other side of the cross to look back on the very beginning of what we find in Genesis 1 and 2, understanding the fall's impact on it then and the impact on our lives now and how we understand it. So we'll come back to a lot of things you probably want me to discuss in this chapter after we get through a big picture of the first three chapters. Does that make sense? All right, great. Some of you are going to leave now, but send you an email when I get to what you want to hear. All right, back to God's word now, all right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so as we've said for the last couple of weeks, this is the big picture, right? In the beginning, God, the infinite, eternal, uncreated one, created the heavens and the earth. And even from the first sentence, the first words of this account, as Moses would pen it and God's people would heard it read, as God's people would eventually read it for themselves, we are reminded from the beginning that the world and all that we see and all of the cosmos, it isn't God. It was created by God and dependent upon him, and that includes us. We're not God's either. So from the very beginning of the story, even in Moses' day, that would have been a massive affront to the stories of the nations that they were surrounded by. It was a massive affront to the very reality story that Moses was brought up in in the courts of Pharaoh. In the beginning, the infinite, eternal, uncreated one created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. If you don't know anything about Hebrew, if you've never taken Hebrew, which I would imagine most of you haven't, the first phrase that everyone who ever takes Hebrew learns is right here in Genesis 1-2. It's tohu vavohu. It's fun to say. Tohu vavohu. It means formless and void. It literally just means disordered. The English word is to try to come up with it are, are formless, disorder, empty, void. It's not inhabitable yet. It's not yet what God will make it to be. It's not yet ordered and differentiated. And darkness was over the face of the deep. A darkness which you and I can't even begin to comprehend. It's an utter darkness. You know, darkness by definition is the absence of light. There's a very, I don't know of any places that you and I can readily get to where we can begin to actually experience this kind of utter darkness. But darkness was over the face of the deep, and, it's a big word, and, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God is present. He's ready to bring order so that life can flourish. And so from the first two verses, what we have is a very dramatic picture being painted from the start. There's disorder. There's formlessness. There's void. And there's the presence of God hovering like an eagle over her nest. What will the Spirit of God do? What will happen to the disorder? What will happen to the formlessness and the void? Well, what's pictured next is stunning. Starting in verse 3, Moses begins to unpack God's work in a series of days. And each day of creation will address the problems of formlessness or disorder and void or emptiness. 
Each of the days will correspond to solving the dilemmas of chapter 2, bringing order out of disorder and filling where there was lack or emptiness. But here, before we get too far down the roller coaster hill of the chapter, here I will introduce you to another source of so much debate. How are we to understand these days? Are they literal 24-hour days as you and I understand them? Are they just metaphorical? Are they long, indefinite epics or periods of time? Yes. That's what they are. Yes. Two thoughts about this as we, again, begin to get into this story. First one, it is an established fact that godly, Bible-loving men and women who have given their lives to God's word have differed over the opening verses of Genesis. It is an established fact. In fact, when we come just to an understanding of what might be being said in these days, within the Christian community, there are no less than six big ways that Bible-believing men and women through the centuries have understood these days. There's more than six, but there's no less than six. Depending on, for those of you who grew up in a church or maybe in a Christian school or a Christian college, you have probably been introduced to one or more of these as you've heard people talk about the book of Genesis. There's what's known as the day-age theory, which would say that when we come to this word day in Genesis chapter 1, a day to God is not like a day to us. These days are indefinite periods of time, long epic of time. Each one we come across this word. It's the day-age theory. It's, there's much more detail than that. I'm only going to explain these to you in a couple of sentences, but if you're interested, I've got an endless array of books you can read about it. The other one that's, that's fairly common within the, the orthodox understanding of the book of Genesis is to see these days as analogous to our days. They're God's work days. They're his days. They're six sequential days, but they're God's work days. And God's work days aren't like our work days. But as we understand God's work days on this side of creation, we understand them in relation to the way that he's ordered the world in the chronological period he's given us with the sun and the moon. And so we understand his days like our days, but they're not the exact same thing. It's an analogy, so to speak. Then there's the gap theory. This was first brought onto the scene by one of my heroes, and I don't agree with him, and I was like shaking my head when I first found that he was the one that brought it to the scene, but I understand why he did it. A man named Thomas Chalmers, who wrote one of the best sermons ever written on the expulsive power of a new affection, but it's known as the gap theory. The gap theory says that in between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, that Genesis 1-1 speaks of the fullness of God's creation. All that he would create was encapsulated in Genesis 1-1. But in between 1-1 and 1-2, something happened. Something ruined God's original creation. Now, people who tend to hold to the gap theory, again, there are many different tribes within that theory that give different reasons to what brought ruin to God's original creation, but one, two speaks of a new creation. And so there's an indefinite period of time between those two verses where God restores what had been ruined. It's very common to hear about this. There's also one that's pretty common. You may have learned in school, it's called the framework hypothesis, but that's just a fancy way of saying literary day theory. 
It just means, in, 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 as simple as I can make it, that these days are, a, are just a literary convention to help communicate a larger spiritual idea. You often find this theory, the, the, liter, the, uh, the uh, literary day theory or the framework hypothesis, working alongside uh, scholars who see much of the first three chapters of Genesis as purely poetry, artistry. Again, love some people who hold to this idea. Uh, the other big one you'll find within the, the evangelical church is what's called the ordinary day theory. And that's simply that God created the universe and then formed the elements of his creation by his word so that through a six-day period, everything became as it should be. That's called the ordinary day theory. And within that theory, there's a whole different group of tribes that understand how that happened. But I love the way that the ESV study Bible speaks about this. It says that none of these views requires denying that Genesis 1 is historical. And each of these readings can be squared with other biblical passages that reflect on creation. Which means that throughout time and even today, men and women who love Jesus and love the Bible will come to different conclusions about how they understand something from the beginning of the story like what's mentioned or taught through these days. And that's not something on which God's people are meant to divide themselves. There's space for debate. There's space for discussion. There's space for disagreement. But it's not meant to be that which is to divide, which gets me to the second thing I want to say about it is that people can differ over things like these days and still believe the Bible is entirely true. This is, if I can just close at this point, I, I will, we'll close, we'll pray, we'll walk away. Because I think there's a lot of us that need to hear this. People can disagree on an understanding of something like these days and still believe the Bible is entri- entirely true and we can accept their understanding of it without accusing them of being unorthodox. Period. What would you say if Augustine was here? Augustine in the city of God said what kind of days these were is extremely difficult or perhaps impossible to even determine. I mean, what would you say to J. Gresham Machen, those of you that are apologetics folk in here? Arguably the most influential writer, theologian in the 20th century for the inerrancy and the authority of the Bible. J. Gresham Machen said, it's certainly not necessary to think that the six days spoken in the first chapter of the Bible are intended to be six days of 24 hours each. What would you say to Carl Henry? Probably the last person the evangelical church has ever really called a church statesman. Probably the largest and loudest defender of biblical authority in the 20th century. Henry said, faith in an inerrant Bible does not rest on the recency or antiquity of the earth. The Bible does not require belief in six literal 24-hour creation days on the basis of Genesis 1 and 2. Listen to what he says, though. It is gratuitous to insist that 24-hour days are involved or intended. He believes that 24-hour days is how it works, but it's gratuitous to insist that a test of orthodoxy or fidelity to the Bible or Jesus himself is built on that. That's a gratuitous reality. And one of the worst things that can happen is when Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians 
begin to take the position that they have grown a a right conviction in through their understanding of the Bible, but then take that conviction on an issue like this and make it the litmus test for faithfulness in other people. We've got to be careful. The nature of these days, just as an example of the kinds of things we get into when we get into Genesis 1, 2, and 3, they're not first-rank issues. Every interpretation, every one of those interpretations has its own questions and its own issues that it has to answer and resolve, period. Which means we need to be able to discuss these things with charity, debate these things with patience and humility, and disagree over these things with each other in love, period. We should no more be anxious to divide amongst ourselves around something like this any more than I would want the church to divide over the fact that some of you are vegan, right? You didn't find that funny. I was trying to lighten it for you. These are important matters, not unimportant, important matters, but they're not matters over which God's people are meant to actually divide. So for some of you, that might encourage you. For others of you, it might discourage you. Um, My hope simply is that for all of us, uh, it would drive us by God's grace to better come to a clear or more stable understanding and conviction through studying God's word together about what is being said here. So that's the introduction to the first big issue, right? We've got to actually get to the Bible now. Back to it. Chapter 1, verse 3, the first day. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. The first order that God brings to this disorder is light. That's a massive biblical theme. Light and darkness. We could spend the entire next month just tracing that through the scriptures. But I want you to recognize, and we'll come back to it later in the story, that even before there was a sun, God calls light to shine in the darkness. It was his own glorious light. And that shouldn't be hard to actually believe. The Bible actually begins with light and no sun. And if you've read the whole story, the story actually ends the same way. Revelation 22, 5, and night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Calvin, trying to deal with this debate within his own congregation, said, read Genesis 1, 1 through 3, and Understand that the Lord, by the very order of creation, bears witness that he holds in his hands the light, which he is able to impart to us without a sun or a moon. We'll get there in verse four, or day four. But notice here some patterns. There's some patterns in this first day that are going to play their way through in the entire story. Notice that it was, it was God's word. It was the speaking act of God that was the instrument of his will. I mean, the instrument of his will and of his authority in the story of creation is his word. He uses words. And what's going to be amazing is that we'll discover as we go through the story, and you already understand because you're sitting here listening to me, is that God created us to use words. And all the ways that we can use words to bless or to curse, to build up or tear down, you and I cannot use words to speak something out of nothing. But God does. In his creation, he chose to use words 
to bring things to being. And all he had to do was speak. And verse 4 says that God saw this light and he said that it was good. You're going to see this throughout the entire story of the days as well. It means it's fit for the purpose that was intended. It means it's, it's as it should be. That's what the good means. This is the way it should be. And then Moses said, God separated the light from the darkness. Again, we're, we're seeing on this first day something we'll see more quickly in the other days. Part of God bringing order to this created reality is that he creates distinctiveness and distinction. He separates the light from the darkness, the day from the night, the waters of above from the waters below, light for the day, light for the night, male and female. Distinctiveness is essential to God's created order. God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So here again, we see not only the power, but the authority of God. He names what he creates. Everyone in Moses' day, all of God's people, having been delivered out, gone through the wilderness, on the edge of the land, conversant with the stories of the nations around them, everyone would have understood an aspect of sovereignty and authority is the ability to name. And we're going to see it over and over, day after day. Here God called the light day and the darkness he called night. This is his authority. And there was evening and morning the first day. So this is a pattern that's going to set in place. And you'll see it. You'll just hear it as I read through it. Day two, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So again, you can see him here speaking, separating, ordering, giving form, naming. And what is it that he has ordered and now named? It's what you and I would understand as the atmosphere. Just from observational language that you find here, this is what he's talking about. The waters below have been separated by the, from the waters above. In their day, they would have looked up and said, "Where does there's water that comes down onto the earth. It's the, what we would call rain. But if you just commonly and observationally go outside and you look up and imagine yourself in that day, the, the way that the cosmology would have been best you know, understood and communicated was that they could see that it was a bit like a dome as they would look over the horizons and God had fashioned an expanse, what we would call the atmosphere, the, the skies to keep the waters that were above separate from the waters that were below. And then on day three, God said that the waters under the heavens, under the expanse, be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Again, I want you to hear the pattern. He speaks he brings order. He creates distinction. He's separating. He's bringing form. And he's naming. And so now in this, you have the seas, the, the oceans, the rivers, and the dry land, which is crucial for the drama of redemption that's going to take place on this land. But order is reigning over disorder. 
by the word of God. That's what's happening. What had been without order or formless, order is now being brought by the word of God. As one writer said, God has sublimely ordered the chaos by the power of his word. And form has been brought. And you've got the larger realms of time. The larger realms of the sky and the sea and the land. And they have order. The formlessness has been dealt with. And now he's going to begin to deal with the void. The empty. So in verse 11, God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. So now God is giving the ability to his creation to multiply and to multiply according to its kind. You're going to hear that again in the story because it's very important. Again, distinction is being brought into God's created order. God's order is being reflected in these distinctives. And at the same time, as God's people would hear this read, it would tell this story, would read this for themselves, the stories of the gods of the earth, the gods of the harvest, the gods of the plants, the gods of fertility, are being powerfully dismissed. There is no God of the harvest. There is no sea God, only the seas that God Almighty created and controls. Only the earth that God Almighty created, including its harvest. And so Moses said that God saw that it was good. It was fit for its purpose as it should be. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And then on day four... God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons, for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning on the fourth day. Again, this gets into how you would understand what's being intended by the use of day. I mean, if you have God speaking creation into existence, it's not hard to imagine that he can find a way to keep things light or dark before the sun or the moon were created. But even those who would hold to a more ordinary day view as you and I understand a day have a different, different groups of understanding as to what actually happened on this day. Where the sun and the moon just given the function now of ordering the light and the darkness that was already created. There's different ways of understanding it. But the bigger thing I want you to see in the nature of the story as it was written and as it was intended is that even these celestial things, the sun and the moon and the stars and all of their glory and all of their beauty, they were God's gifts to his creation. They weren't powers over his creation. And that would have been enormous to God's people. In fact, scholars will agree that Moses consciously avoided, one writer said, using the name sun and moon because those were gods in the Egyptian world. 
Moses is saying the sun and the moon and the stars are not God's. They're God's creations. He's asserting the glory of God's majesty over against the, the, the polytheism of the day in Egypt, Mesopotamia, and in Canaan, even when they'll get there. But now you have the regularity of day and night established and the body is in the skies for signs and for seasons. And so on day five, I love this word. God said, let the waters swarm. I love that word. I don't know, maybe it's like, like words. I don't know, I like that word. Just didn't say, let there be some. He said, let the waters swarm. I mean, let them be filled with swarms of living creatures. And let the birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then something happens in verse 22 that hasn't happened yet. So I want you to see in this particular day, God blesses them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth and There was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. So again, there's speaking, there's filling. It's good for its purpose. And here, unlike other days, God blessed. This is the first direct mention of God's blessing in the scriptures. And the blessing is in the command that God gives. God actually speaks and commands that his creation be fruitful and multiply. And the blessing was in that command. And that's another huge theme that can be traced from this starting point throughout the story of the scriptures. I mean, even for you and I now, as a little bit of a a sidebar, we, we think a lot about our legacies, right? What's our legacy? It's a hot word today. What's your legacy going to be? Are you living in such a way? What kind of legacy are you going to leave? What kind of life are you building right now that you could leave as a legacy to the coming generations? But God doesn't necessarily speak that way. God speaks in general in his scriptures in terms of blessing. How do you perceive the good that you experience in this life that you're living right now? Is it the product of your own wisdom and the work of your own hands? Or is it the product of God's blessing? The idea that God blesses his creation in particular ways is another theme, again, that goes all the way through the scriptures. But the other thing you see even here in this day is that we find, again, his creation is distinctive according to its kind. Back in verse 11, he was talking about the trees and the plants, and here he's not But in his distinctiveness in creation, what I want you to at least catch as we start is that his creative glory is in the variety of kinds and distinctions that he creates. And not only is his creative glory seen in that, I want you to understand that God delights in that. It's not just that you and I get to delight in the distinctiveness of God's creative glory and the distinctions in his creative glory. He actually delights in it. And again, this would be a head-on collision 
with a larger narrative or worldview of Moses' day in Mesopotamia and in other regions that even trickles down in different ways today that everything personal and impersonal, animate and inanimate, has all derived from one original life form. No. God Almighty, creator of, of heaven and earth, has created and he's brought distinction and distinctiveness to his created order for his glory according to its kind. And on day six, you, you see it come to fruition. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And so here in the story, God has formed the world in three days. And now in parallel days, he's begun to fill it with the light of the sun and the moon and the stars, with trees and plants and creatures of the deep and winged creatures of the sky and animals and beasts treading the earth. And one scholar said creation was full and ready for its ultimate fullness for the creation of man. And so it's here, at this point in the story, it begins to slow down. It's almost like it hits slow motion. And we begin to come to the, the crowning achievement in creation. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And we'll spend more time on it in the coming weeks, but you can notice there the change from the third person to the first person plural. Let there be, let there be, let there be. That's what we've seen over and over again. But now a new pronoun enters the story. Let us make. And instead of making things with the capacity to reproduce according to their own kind, now more specifically, man is made according to God's kind, to his image. Yes, man is created. Yes, he is a creature, but he's not like the other ones. He's not like the other creatures. Yes, on the same day, the animals of the land, the beasts of the field were created, but man is not part of that kingdom. He's of another kind entirely. Listen to what God begins to say. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God stamped his image and likeness on man, and he said, let them have dominion. Just notice that nothing else in the story so far has been given this. The rest of the created order simply does what it does by God's created intention, by what you might want to call its God-given instinct and the habitat that God intended for it. And it does some amazing things. uh, You watch the bees. There are entire departments in in universities that do nothing but study bees. And the fact that bees live like many civilizations and the things that go on, they're just operating according to their God-given instinct and their habitat to the glory of God the way that he created them. They don't have dominion over you or the cows or anything else. Only man does God speak this way about. So God created man in his own image, Moses said. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. 
And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And there's a lot to say about that and we'll do it later, right? So I promise we'll do it later. But the one thing is the day unfolds that I want you to see, especially in the context of how it would have been understood and heard and part of its creative intent happens in the next verses where God says, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. He says the same thing about, in verse 30, about everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. You have to understand how this would have been heard. In all of the other stories that we know of from those days, from Egypt, Mesopotamia, Canaan, all the varying tribes, all the, the historical records that we have, This is the only story that has God Almighty providing for his creation. You realize in every other story, humanity existed to provide for the gods. That was what they were there for. They were there to provide for the gods, make the God happy. They were the source of the God's joy or the source of the God's anger. That was the purpose of humanity. But not here. God Almighty spreads out a banquet for his creation and provides for them. And it was so. And he saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And so at this point, man and woman are truly glorious. They are in a state of spiritual and social and an ecological perfection. They are with God. He is with them. He has given them everything that they would need, and they were at peace with him and one another. God's people living in God's place under God's rule with great joy. And so this is where chapters mess up stories in the Bible. Chapter 1, verse 1 started, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but you got to see the finish in chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Right, the creation of man may have crowned the creative work, but it wasn't the climax of the story. Day seven is the climax of the story on which we find three times that God rested. He stopped. He ceased. Not because he was exhausted, not because he was weary. No, it means that God stopped and he looked and he saw what he had created and he enjoyed it. He looked at his work and he delighted in it. Have you ever seen the show on Netflix, Nailed It? Right? It's a setup. All, all, none of those people can cook, right? And the whole object is to cook this cake or this creation that takes a team of professional experts half a day to make and they get 45 minutes. And they lift the dome off where they make and it's just this horrible group of nothing. I'm like, ah, nailed it. Day seven, quite literally, is the only true time in which one Almighty can step back at the work of his hands and say in every way known possibly completely and fully, 
Nailed it. That's what day seven is. He is enjoying the goodness of his creation. The tension at the beginning of the story, the formlessness, the void, the presence of the Spirit of God hovering has brought order. It's brought order where there was disorder, light where there was darkness, fullness where there was a void. And I don't know if you ever noticed it, if you've read through the story or you, you were raised with the story, but do you ever really think about the fact that man's first day on this created world was spent in rest? He was created on the sixth day, and on the seventh day, he didn't do anything. He simply joined God in enjoying what God had done on his behalf. See, there's a way in which we read this, we begin to see that there's much more going on here than what we just see on the surface. In a sense, what we see happening with humanity enjoying the work of God's hand and on his behalf on the seventh day, in a sense, this is how you and I as God's people are meant to live day by day now, enjoying the work of God on our behalf. Enjoying his work most specifically, not just in his created order, but in his recreating work in Jesus. The one who called himself the light. The one who declared that he was the light of the world and whoever followed him would not walk and live in darkness, but would have the light of life. The one who John says was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him not was, any, was anything made that was made. In him was life and That life was the light of men and him who brings light into darkness, order into chaos. He does the same thing in our souls. If you are here and you would say that you were a follower of Jesus, you need to understand, as we said a couple of weeks ago, that you have experienced nothing less than a miracle of creative portions in your soul. As God spoke, and brought light into the darkness of your heart. Where darkness and disorder reigned, he brought light and life. And as you come to the story, even on this side of the cross, you begin to still recognize even deeper patterns and powers at play. I don't know if you have this experience with God the Father at all, or if you've ever tried to understand his love for you in in the way of imagining him stepping back, so to speak, like we see in the creation story on the seventh day, and looking at you and going, very good. If I'm honest, I, I don't think that's the predominant framework through which I think God sees me. I can take the conversations I have with many of you and say a lot of you share it as well. We don't tend to think that God steps back like he did on the seventh day of creation and looks at us and says, nailed it. But you see, you and I need to understand that he has done everything necessary that has to be done in order to receive us and love us. He quite literally nailed it in his son on the cross in our place. Jesus, the light that brought life to men, the one in whom all things were created and are upheld by the word of his power, 
He was put into darkness. The gospel writers remind us that on the cross, the earth shook and darkness enveloped the skies. In some sense, he entered into that darkness, taking our sin upon himself so that we could be created anew in his resurrection. It's our story. We were meant to live under the loving gaze of God Almighty who sees you in his son and says, very good. That is a rest that you and I were meant to live in and enjoy even now. That is a Sabbath rest that can be ours through faith in his son. One writer said the very same power that flung the stars out into the unfathomable expanding universe while orchestrating life in irreducible complexity in all the cells of your body will act on your behalf if you would only come to him. He will turn your night into day with nothing but a word. He will reorder your broken life with a word. He will bring form out of chaos with a word. It's his specialty. It's his specialty. Let me pray for us this morning as we get ready to respond to God and his word this morning. Lord, we want to live in the rest that you have purchased for us in your son. We want to live in the completed rest of his work on our behalf, the rest of enjoying you and your verdict on us in him. That you would look upon us and see your son and say, very good. God, we ask this morning as we go through these chapters, as we go through your word, that you by your spirit would do that miracle that only you could do. And you're going to have to make sense out of a lot of things, not just that our minds would be clear, but more than that, that the worship of our hearts would go deeper. Lord, we want what you reveal to us about yourself and about your glory and about your grace to us in these chapters to deepen our worship, to deepen our delight in you, to deepen our gratitude for your grace. So Lord, we ask this morning that you would do that work by your spirit of removing obstacles to our eyes seeing you clearly in this. Remove obstacles to our ears hearing your voice clearly in your word. Lord, would you take our hearts and, and give us that rest and enjoyment of your work on our behalf, that rest with you that we are so desperately in need of. Lord, we ask now that you would give it to us as we feast on what you have given us now in a moment as you reminded us of your son, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.